Hello, I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the June podcast. The first paper is titled Pharmacotherapy for Diabetes and Stroke Risk, Results from Rocket AF by Dr. Francis Ugawe and colleagues. This is a very interesting paper. The question asked in this study is whether there is an increased risk of stroke in diabetic patients with atrial fibrillation who take insulin. To look at this, the authors used the Rocket AF patient population. The primary endpoint was the occurrence of stroke or systemic embolism, myocardial infarction, all-cause death, vascular death, and bleeding risk in the Rocket AF trial. Of the 14,264 patients in Rocket AF, 40% of these had diabetes, and 842 of the patients were on insulin, with the majority of the remainder taking oral medications and a smaller proportion treated with diet control alone. What the authors find is that non-insulin diabetics compared to patients without diabetes had a higher risk of stroke, MI, all-cause death, vascular death, and further composite outcomes. Patients with insulin-treated diabetes also had a higher risk of MI and the composite outcomes compared to those without diabetes. However, there was no difference between the insulin-treated and non-insulin-treated diabetic patients. Importantly, the substitution of insulin-treated diabetes instead of any diabetes into the CHADS-2 VAS score did not dramatically improve its discriminatory capacity in stroke risk prediction. The next paper is titled, Early Experiences with Three Types of Balloon-Based Ablation Catheters in Patients with Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Atushi Kabori and colleagues. The purpose of this retrospective practical study was to examine the early procedural experience using three different AF ablation balloon catheters. The endpoints included a successful completion of the procedure and other time metrics for the procedure. The goal was to describe the appropriate clinical setting required to aid in learning how to use these different techniques. The three balloon catheters were cryo-balloon, the hot balloon, and the laser balloon. They looked at 50 consecutive patients for each of these techniques. Their study represented their experience during three consecutive time segments. That is, their experience was based upon the time period in which each of these different catheters was launched, the cryo balloon in 2014, the hot balloon in 2016, and the laser balloon in 2018. All patients included in the study had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and the results are reported for those patients for whom that particular balloon catheter was the only balloon catheter used in their procedure. The authors found that the PBI completion rate was 56% with the hot balloon catheter and 88% for both the cryo balloon and laser balloon catheters. Radio frequency touch-up was used in those who required it and most frequently was required in 10.8% of cryoablation, 22.7% of hot balloon, and 8.5% of the laser balloon patients. The most common sites for touch-up were at the bottom aspect of the inferior pulmonary veins in the cryoballoon group and at the anterior aspect of the superior pulmonary veins in the hot balloon and laser balloon groups. Regarding procedural times, the laser balloon catheter had the longest average PBI procedural time, 89.2 versus 58.4 minutes for hot balloon and versus 65 minutes for cryoballoon but the difference was ultimately removed over time as the operators became more proficient with the catheter. There was no significant difference in the major complication rates or recurrence-free survival rates among the catheter types. The 
The authors conclude that all three balloon-based catheter types allowed feasibility and quality outcomes for PVI, even during the learning period. They also suggest that to introduce these new catheters without complications and based upon their data, that an experience of 20 cases should be met for each catheter type. The next paper is called Excessive Supraventricular Ectopic Activity and Risk of Incident Atrial Fibrillation in a Consecutive Population Referred to Ambulatory Cardiac Monitoring by Dr. Bjorn Larson and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to assess if very frequent supraventricular ectopy, defined by the authors as equal to or greater than 720 premature or runs of equal to or greater than 20 premature atrial contractions, is a surrogate marker for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The authors looked at 1,316 patients without prior known AF and without pacemakers who had 48-hour ambulatory ECG monitoring performed between 2009 and 2011. Median follow-up was eight years. Review of patient records was performed to identify incident AF and death. The authors identified that 12.9% of the population had frequent supraventricular ectopy. 8.9% of the total 1,316 patients developed incident AF, but of those with the frequent excessive supraventricular ectopy, 23% developed incident AF, or 23 patients. The incidence rate of AF was 37.1 per 1,000 person years for the excessive supraventricular ectopy group and 9.1% per 1,000 person years for the group without excessive supraventricular atrial ectopy. The adjusted hazard ratio for the association of excessive supraventricular ectopic atrial activity was 2.39 with a 95% confidence interval of 1.4 to 4.09. When the analysis was adjusted for death as a competing risk, the hazard ratio was not very different at 2.35. The authors conclude that evidence of excessive supraventricular atrial ectopic activity has a greater than twofold risk of subsequent incident atrial fibrillation. The next paper is titled The Contribution of Intermittent Handheld Electrocardiogram and Continuous Electrocardiogram Monitoring with an Implantable Loop Recorder to Detect Incident and Recurrent Atrial Fibrillation during one year after coronary artery bypass graft surgery, a prospective cohort study. This study was performed by doctors Emma Sandgren and colleagues. The study was a pre-specified subgroup analysis of the prospective atrial fibrillation after cabbage and percutaneous coronary intervention study. In this study, 40 patients post-cabbage received an implantable loop recording. All patients also used a handheld ECG to record three times a day during the first 30 days and then again for two consecutive weeks at 3 and 12 months. Altogether, 27 of 40 patients were diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, 24 during the first month, and 21 of them while still in the hospital, and an additional three patients during months 2 and 12. Three of the total patients progressed to persistent AF. In addition, 17 patients had one or more further AF episodes. The handheld ECG identified 45% of the AF episodes that had been identified on the implantable loop recorder. Patients with atrial fibrillation had a higher CHADS VAS score than non-atrial fibrillation patients with a median of 4, compared to 3 in the non-AF patients. The authors conclude that patients with atrial fibrillation during the post-operative hospitalization showed a high likelihood of recurrent atrial fibrillation and usually occurring within the first 30 days. They also confirmed that an ILR was more likely to identify AF episodes 
compared to intermittent handheld ECG recordings. The next paper is titled Implantable Loop Recorder for Augmenting Detection of New Onset Atrial Fibrillation After Typical Atrial Flutter Ablation by Dr. Gary Peng and colleagues. This study looks at the use of implantable loop recorders in patients undergoing CTI ablation to look at the development of subsequent atrial fibrillation. The patient population included 217 veterans hospital patients undergoing atrial flutter ablation between 2002 and 2019, in whom six months of follow-up was available. The authors then look at the incidence of atrial fibrillation after ablation, comparing conventional monitoring or implantable loop recorder monitoring. Conventional monitoring included four weeks of trans-telephonic monitoring or a 14-day continuous patch monitor. They also received standard 12-lead ECGs at each follow-up clinic visit. Further monitoring was ordered if symptoms dictated doing so. Nuance at AF was then compared between the two monitoring groups. 172 patients, or 79% of the total population, had conventional monitoring, and an implantable loop recorder was used in the remaining 21% of patients. The median follow-up duration after ablation was 4.1 years. The authors found that 79 patients, or 36%, developed new-onset atrial fibrillation, which was detected by conventional monitoring in 30% and by the implantable loop recorder monitoring in 62%. AF detection occurred at 7.7 months after a flutter ablation in the ILR group versus 41 months in the conventional monitoring group. 11 patients, or 5%, experienced cerebral vascular events, and all of these were in the conventional monitoring group, and only four of these patients were on long-term anticoagulation. The authors conclude that patients undergoing a flutter ablation remain at increased risk of developing nuanced atrial fibrillation and that AF is detected sooner and more frequently by ILR monitoring than by conventional monitoring. The authors suggest that improving AF detection may allow optimization of rhythm management strategies and anticoagulation in this patient population. The next paper is titled Mini Electrode Catheter Technology for Near Zero Fluoroscopy Substrate Guided Ablation of typical atrial flutter by first author, Dr. Joanna Betts. The study reports on the experience of these authors using a microfidelity catheter for cable tricuspid isthmus ablation in 82 patients. The catheter used was a non-irrigated large tip catheter with three microelectrodes. Bipolar voltage maps were then compared to the electroanatomic maps by directly comparing 15 segments of the cable tricuspid isthmus. The outcome was compared with a historic control group of 92 patients who underwent linear ablation. Compared with linear ablation, the substrate-guided approach cut in half the ablation durations and required half the total radiofrequency energy with an overall shorter procedure duration. Using the substrate-guided approach, energy del delivery was limited to 22.7% of the cable tricuspid isthmus. Using the high-frequency electroanatomic mapping approach, the authors were able to better identify discrete conductive pathways, which correlated with ablation efficacy. Fluoroscopy was not used in 88% of the linear ablation procedures and not used in 97.6% of the substrate voltage-guided procedures. The authors conclude that high-resolution electroanatomic mapping-based substrate-guided CTI ablation may improve procedural outcome compared with the linear approach. Further, the authors note that 
the electroanatomic subdivision of the CTI into 15 segments was feasible, and that may improve the understanding and comparability of anatomic variants and ablation results. The next study is Open Surgical Ablation of Ventricular Tachycardia, Utility and Feasibility of Contemporary Mapping and Ablation Tools by authors Megan Kunkel and colleagues. This paper reports a small series of eight patients with recurrent ventricular tachycardia despite antiarrhythmic drugs and prior ablation. The authors described their experience using electroanatomic mapping with open surgical ablation. The patients had either ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with a median ejection fraction of 39%. The reason for the open procedure was planned LVAD or in the case where the proceduralist was not able to access the pericardium due to prior pericarditis or prior cardiac surgery, or prior hemopericardium. Cryoablation guided by real-time electroanatomic mapping was performed in all. The clinical goal was non-inducibility or core isolation, which was achieved in 100% of the patients. Subsequent ventricular tachycardia burden was significantly reduced from 15 to zero events comparing the month pre and the month post-surgical ablation. One patient underwent orthotopic heart transplantation for a recurrent VT storm two weeks post-surgical ablation. Over a mean follow-up of 3.4 years, VT storm-free survival was achieved in 75%, or six patients. It is noted that all of these patients continued antiarrhythmic drugs, although required a lower dose. The authors conclude that surgical mapping and ablation of refractory VT with use of contemporary electroanatomic mapping is feasible and effective, particularly among patients with a contraindication to percutaneous epicardial access or with another indication for cardiac surgery. The next paper is Dynamic Spatial Dispersion of Repolarization is Present in Regions Critical for Ischemic Ventricular Tachycardia Ablation by author Neil Srinivasan and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to evaluate dynamic ventricular repolarization changes in critical regions of the VT circuit during sensed single extra stimulus pacing. The authors report on 20 patients who undergo VT ablation. The patients all had a sinus rhythm voltage map performed and had single extra stimulus pacing performed. The authors measured the ventricular repolarization time using the unipolar electrogram T waves according to the Wyatt method and noting the dBdt max of the unipolar T wave. Standard entrainment or pace mapping was used to confirm critical sites for ablation. The authors note that the median global repolarization range was 166 milliseconds during sinus rhythm mapping versus 208 milliseconds obtained during single extra stimulus mapping. Regions of late potentials had a longer repolarization time during single stimulus pacing mapping compared to regions without late potentials. Spatial dispersion of repolarization in paired areas, however, was not different between sinus rhythm mapping and single extra stimulus mapping. The spatial dispersion of repolarization was noted to be greater in the critical areas of the VT circuit during the single extra stimulus mapping versus sinus rhythm mapping. 63 plus and minus 29 milliseconds for the single extra stimulus mapping versus 16 plus and minus 9 milliseconds for the extra stimulus pacing. The authors conclude that ventricular repolarization is prolonged in regions of late potentials and increases dynamically resulting in dynamic spatial dispersion of repolarization in critical areas of the VT circuit. The next paper is called Predicting Early Reconnection After Cryo-Ablune Ablation with Procedural and Biophysical Parameters by Dr. Femike Heese. 
See the narrated PowerPoint that our associate editor, Dr. Dennis Lau, has provided online. The purpose of this study was to identify procedural and biophysical parameters predicting early reconnection, as this could be important to predict ERC immediately after PVI and possibly avoid a waiting period using adenosine testing. The time to isolation, balloon temperatures, and thawing times were evaluated as potential predictors for ERC. Based upon a multivariable model, cutoff values were defined, and the authors constructed a formula that they posit can be used in clinical practice. In 136 patients, early reconnection occurred in 29%, representing 9% of the veins isolated. The authors find that procedural and total ablation time and the number of unsuccessful freezes were significantly longer and higher in the ERC group compared to the non-ERC group. A multivariable analysis showed that a higher nadir balloon temperature, higher number of unsuccessful freezes, and a longer TTI were independently associated with ERC. Using these findings, the authors developed a predictive formula provided in their paper. The authors conclude that three easily available parameters were associated with early reconnection and that using their predictive formula, this can help to avoid the 30-minute waiting period and adenosine testing. Also included in this issue is a great review article entitled Inflammation, Atrial Fibrillation, and the Potential Role for Colchicine Therapy by Drs. Varghese and colleagues. Finally, this issue also contains a brief report entitled Cardiac Arrhythmias in Patients Hospitalized with COVID-19, the A-COVID Study by Dr. Zarini and colleagues. This concludes my summary of the articles found in the June issue of Heart Rhythm 02. Thank you for listening to this podcast.